It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm -hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you. I guess I kind of felt ripped off. It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Give people voices to talk about, Do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukaemia Foundation. Find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions. I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations and nothing scares me. That gives you another goal to work towards and, and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkadip and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real-life stories of people living with the blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. 
So, let's get into today's episode. In today's interview, Marianne speaks with Harrison Thompson from Brisbane, who at the age of 23 was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Harrison was also required to undergo an unrelated bone marrow transplant. He shares the importance of maintaining personal identity and how, after his diagnosis, he found it such a challenge to let go of the life he knew and loved, all while knowing it was in order to save his life. Harrison's mindset had him re-enter the workforce as soon as he could post-transplant, which he believes contributed to his well-being throughout his cancer journey. Good morning. I'm Mary Ann with the Leukemia Foundation, um, sharing here today our um, Talking Blood Cancer podcast, and I'm quite excited to welcome Harrison Thompson with me here this morning. Um, I, I believe you prefer being called Harry. So welcome, Harry, and thank you for agreeing to share some time with me for our Talking Blood Cancer podcast. Thanks, Marianne. It's awesome to be with you. So usually we start these conversations with capturing a little bit about who you are, a little bit about your blood cancer journey, and where were you, where were you at diagnosis? What was happening for you and what led you to the doctor to receive a blood cancer diagnosis? Yeah, awesome. Um, When I was uh, diagnosed um, back in April 2021, uh, I had quite a quick diagnosis, very thankfully, after presenting to the GP um, and getting a blood test done. Um, What led me to, to prompted me to go to that um, and get that test done was um, I'd been unable to shake a flu for quite a few weeks. I have a lot of flu-like symptoms. uh, which uh, I had a home doctor actually come and visit me while I was having um, those flu symptoms and gave me a course of antibiotics and it just never cleared up. Um, and um, I was also very fatigued um, and a lot of my friends and family around me thought I may have just been struggling with some anemia, some low iron, um, and thought I should go and get a, a blood test done just to see what was going on. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't anemia, and um, I was diagnosed with uh, ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, in um, April, almost two years ago. Wow, Harry. And was it a phone call where you received that diagnosis, or were you called into the surgery? So I got the blood test done on the Friday, um, and I was called on the Sunday. Uh, while the doctor's surgery was closed um, and um, was asked to come in first thing before the doctor's surgery opened on Monday uh, because they needed to urgently discuss the blood results with me. Um, How did you feel in that moment, receiving that conversation? I remember I was uh, out out at the shops um, for everyone in Brisbane listening. I was at Trimble uh, before it was tragically lost in the floods last year. Uh, with my partner Sam, and um, we were in the, we were in a store, and I was like, "Oh my god, you know something's gone wrong." Um, but him being the cool, level-headed person that he is, you know, said, oh, "Everything's going to be fine." And um, yeah, it was it was pretty daunting um, getting oh, that phone call. Did you did you sleep much that night? Can you remember? Oh well, I was so fatigued at the time. It's obviously yeah. it's one of the symptoms of of being prompted to go and get. So, yes, I did sleep, but it was not because it, I was, you know, able to. It was because just my body needed that rest. But, um, that rest. yeah, it was it was quite nerve-wracking. 
So did you have someone with you when you went into the surgery the next day to receive that diagnosis? No, I didn't actually. And um, uh, I went in, saw my doctor. He then um, printed out a bunch of forms, stuck them in the envelope and sealed the envelope. Um, He explained, uh, prior to him doing that, he explained to me that, you know, my blood counts, my white cell count was very high, my platelet count was very low, um, and that there was something going on there. Um, I suppose I was fortunate enough that I knew a little bit about um, leukaemia, and so I sort of knew from the moment that he was explaining the blood results that something was wrong and I'd probably had leukaemia. Um, I then drove... Yeah. Um, I then um, remember driving to my partner's sister's house who lived close to the Royal Brisbane Hospital, um, which is where my doctor said, you need to go and present to the emergency department now and they'll do more blood tests. Um, And I drove to um, my partner's sister's house and she dropped me off to the the hospital. Um, And from that moment being dropped off, I didn't leave the hospital for 38 days. Oh, my goodness. So you mentioned that you knew a little bit about leukaemia is that um from your like a personal experience or what no i um i had done a lot of uh volunteering in the in with cancer charities um and yeah and had some experience in um just sort of understanding how different cancers form and are caused and um knew that you know having a abnormally large um count of white blood cells typically meant that you were you know experiencing some form of a blood cancer um, and knew that, yeah. So I've sort of tried to put two and two together in my head and um, thought, okay, well, this is happening, yeah. Terribly big news to digest, Harry. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. you know, hard news for, um, it had mm. just been my 23rd birthday, so about a month after my 23rd birthday. Um, and yeah, not, not the sort of news you expect in your, you know, for anyone. Uh, particularly somebody who was like me, uh, who was, you know, very active in work and social life and um, that you expect to get that um, that news so early in life um, no. and so unexpectedly. Yes, it just would have stopped you and your, your head would have been in a spin, stopped yeah. you in your, in your tracks. Yeah, that's right. You know, it was all the your mind automatically goes through to the what-if sort of scenarios and... Then um, uh, and then you've got you know to to focus on treatment, but at the same time you've also got to focus on all the getting everything in your life sorted as well. Um, Absolutely, in, in just even even that there, Harry, in saying getting you know here you are in hospital for an extended period of time, having left what you've touched on a very busy social life as well as a committed work life how did you manage that time what conversations did you feel you needed to have to organize yourself and to digest that news that you had a blood cancer yeah it was um look uh, everyone's situation is obviously very different and um i am very thankful that um and lucky that i had a phenomenal support network around me that took a lot of that on board for them um, you know, it's a rigorous treatment regime, um, having a blood... It's a um, rigorous treatment regime uh, getting um, blood cancer treatment. 
Um, and uh, thankfully a lot of people around me recognised that and, and took on a lot of that um, life admin work for me. Um, in, you know, I was living in a share house, so I, I had to get out of the share house setting. Um, my partner and I weren't living together. Um, you know, my beautiful um, partner's mother and father took, um, took me in and, and helped me, um, you know, with, you know, having, having somewhere um, stable to live while I was going through a very long treatment journey. Um, and, and even that, that in itself, Harry, would have been an adjustment. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it, it was. Um, you know, mm. I lived out of home for quite a f- number of years. My family were uh, living in a different part of Queensland and, and you know, it, it just wasn't possible for me to go through the treatment I was, I was having and, and um, living with them. Um, so I was very thankful that, that that got looked after for me and those decisions were made um, uh, for me because, you know, I really wasn't at capacity during that time to, to make big decisions. Um, but it also meant that, um, you know, I was out of work for a long extended period of time while I was um, going through all that all the treatment and then ultimately um, in October of 2021 having the bone marrow transplant as well. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot to take on. A lot to take on for such a young boy, you know, such a young man, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big adjustments, big adjustments. Yeah. And uh, what did you do with work, Carrie? Did you put it on hot? Like, did you just take extended leave? Did you resign? Did they support you? Because work is, is often that thing that defines us if we love what we're doing. I, um, strangely enough, was when I, when I couldn't shake this... Um, this flu for quite a, a while. I um, had left my job just because I was I was so unwell. I just didn't know what was going on, um, and I was working in a in a job that was quite a high performance role that needed a lot of um, you, you know needed needed somebody to be on twenty four seven, and I just I couldn't I couldn't manage it with with my health. So I thought I'll I'll I'll, um, I'll jump out at that point in time. Um, which was just a few weeks before being diagnosed. Um, and so I, at the time of diagnosis, wasn't working, um, but um, really loved, as I mentioned before, I was a really social um, person who loved, you know, I love work. I, I love um, uh, being able to wake up and going somewhere and contributing and having that purpose. Um, and that was a really important thing for me. And... Um, you know, not have that over such a long period um, while I was receiving treatment was really hard to not have somewhere to go and uh, have that purpose and, um, you know, contributing and, and making money and, you know, doing all the things that, you know, I love to do. Well, it's your identity, isn't it? If you've, you, if you've, if you've chosen to be committed to study and you've chosen um, a certain pathway, well, it's a natural transition to want to be committed to something so that you can utilise those skills that you've learned and feel worthwhile. It's a part of our identity, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You know, there's something mm. um, that I always found such value in, in turning up every day. And and uh, I've always worked in jobs that I've always loved um, and have felt that I could make a difference in. 
And um, yeah, you know, that was um, sort of, it was taken away because of, because of the illness. Um, so it was a big part of me that, um, that really struggled with not having that daily purpose of the routine, the control um, that I really struggled with not having. That adaptation during that time, Harry, would have been a big adjustment because for you, what what I'm hearing is not only did you have loss of health, but you also, you know, had loss of job and, and purpose. So what choices did you make during that time to help you get up each day, to help you engage in things that brought you purpose? Yeah. What choices did you make? I, for me, it was always um, I needed to stay relevant. So um, it was always keeping across things that were happening in the spaces that I was working in um, because I said to myself, one day I will be back and um, I'm not going to lose any of the knowledge um, or any, you know, not be a part of any of the moments that, that my industry was sort of um, celebrating um, or, you know, key things that were happening. So every morning it was regimented. I'd, you know, read the news. I'd be across every current event that was happening. Um, and it kept my mind active as well um, because that was the big thing um, for me as well was when you didn't have that, you know, some days were very hard when you're going through all that treatment. Um, and when you don't have that thing to go out and do, you know, you're not leaving the house, you're not having that social interaction. Um, and you could sort of sit there feeling like, oh, you know, I've lost all my usefulness. Um, that knowing that you still had that relevant knowledge of things that were going on was really mm. important to me to, to manage through that through that time of not being able to, to be at work. So that was one of the things I did. Um, well, it's a commitment to self, isn't it? I love that. It's an investment in self. It's a recognition of the, you know, the the strengths that you do have, but it's a commitment to maintain and sustain, not let go of. Yeah, and um, that was the mindset that I took throughout the the whole um, cancer treatment was that, you know, you can't control anything that is that is happening. You know, unfortunately, blood cancers, as I'm sure everyone knows, is something that you can't screen for or, you know, you can't prevent. But the one thing, there are things that you can control. And for me, it was one of, you know, taking back some of that control as a, as a self-proclaimed control freak um, and not letting things sort of, you know, not just getting swept along in the emotions of, of you know, having your life sort of blown up a little bit and saying, mm. no, I can, I can, you know, stay on top of this and um, recognise that, you know, one day I will be back and it was that positive sort of affirmation that I would make saying, you know, I'll get through it and getting through that will also mean um, getting back into work one day. I love that. That's a real true commitment to, to self and it's also um, an affirmation to self that you've got that ability to maintain and sustain, which I think is really important, a belief in self and, and a holding on to purpose, recognising what you do love. You know, we often talk about values and we often talk about um, purpose and passion as things that help people get through those times of adversity. Uh, I do think it takes strength of character, though, to place that 
um, as an investment on a day-to-day basis. So good for you that you made those choices on a day-to-day basis to keep abreast of all of the, you know, um, the things that you value and the things that you enjoy. Um, During that time, in your relationships, who did you lean on that helped? Because often it's the whole package, isn't it? Yeah, we can, that's right. you know, the strength does come from within, but sometimes vulnerability is 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 a normal response to people going through a, a really tough time in life. Um, you know, we're, we're all human. What did you What did you do, or who did you lean on, or who was there in your corner for you? Um, at those really low times? Or do you have any suggestions on what helped you in those low times? Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned earlier I had a phenomenal support network and I really do. Yes. And, and I'm mm. always very thankful that uh, I had I had those relationships to lean on. Um, you know, I had a, a lot of core friends and I call them core friends because I you know, lost quite a few friends throughout the way because you, you're just not available to do the sorts of things mm. that, you, that you were. So... Um, my core friends, you know, would come and visit me and um, a lot of them worked in the same sort of industry I was in. So it was great. Okay. We would have those really stimulating conversations to keep my mind active and, and thinking and, um, and that was really important. I, also, I, had a, I have a phenomenal partner who, um, you know, was incredibly supportive and is very interested in a lot of the things that, that uh, I am too. So we share a lot of the same passion. So we were able to um really connect and have those meaningful conversations of things that um you know we could debate and discuss and and for me it was always about trying to have those interactions that would keep my mind active um and really similar and make me think and challenge me to to um to um yeah get get through it and, and and to remind myself that i still had capacity to um to do those things because i think um, when things like this happen, um, you do get that feeling of, oh, well, you know, this is a really awful thing that's happened to me. Awful things will just continue to happen. It's that sort of imposter syndrome of um, not knowing if you're really worthy or, or whether you can actually still do the things that you once did because you've been, you know, rattled around so much. So it was always, I was always searching for that next conversation that I could have that would that would keep my mind active and on the things that I really enjoyed. Yeah, no, that's good. And it's how we spend time, I think, is important for all of us, isn't it? Yeah. Because how we spend time, you know, creates the enjoyment in life. Yeah, that's right. And, um, uh, yeah, and it's about prioritising really how you want to spend that time um, because... Um, you know, for some it could be finding new hobbies and passions um, of things that you want to, you know, try. Um, for me, when I was well enough again, it was for me it was getting back into work, um, and that's you know I just I, I love that purpose and um, being able to to go somewhere and contribute, and that was what was driving me because I really wanted to make sure that you know when I was well enough again, I could get back into the things that I wanted to do. I love that. Um, I often talk um, to people about a vision, you know, the importance of having a vision and getting it clear in your mind what you look like and what you're doing and what you're immersing yourself in. I do think that that's really important. You mentioned earlier that you um, had a transplant. Was it a 
um, an, a relative? Was it an unrelated donor transplant? I was very fortunate um, that I found a um, unrelated match, a, a 100% unrelated match. Um, uh, obviously, don't know too much about my donor, but it was a it was an Australian man, aged forty three, um, and um, yeah, it was my my sister was um, uh, was a partial match, and we were looking at going down um, that avenue with her as my donor, and but you know because of some very kind person joining the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. Um, yeah, I was able to get a to get a hundred percent full match from an unrelated donor. Wonderful. So going into that procedure, you know, a lot of people um, don't know what a transplant is. Uh, often they think it's a, a body part being transplanted, you know, um, and it is really another transfusion. Yeah, it is. Um, it is something that, something that there's a lack of education on, definitely. I didn't. I, I had no idea what it was until I got one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's the other thing that I think. You know, if we, if you're able to share, some people don't want to know that. You know, they they just place their trust in the treating team yeah. and the treating specialists, and they almost surrender themselves to what's required, and they just believe that you know the processes and the treatments that are being offered are you know what's important. Um, was that your experience or are you someone who needed to gather information and, you know? I um, I made a rule from the get-go, from the moment I was diagnosed, that I was not going to do any of my own research uh, myself and I was only going to receive research from, um, from credible organisations like the Leukemia Foundation. And, um, and my one rule was no Googling. Um, I googled one thing in my entire treatment journey, which was what a lumbar puncture was, and I wish I didn't. Oh yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I watched an explainer video on that and thought that looks awful. Um, yes. But you know. You and get, were your experiences with them harsh? Oh, they were. Yes, mm. yes, they were. Uh, you know, there are ways around that because um, uh, originally they were, and I wasn't speaking up about the the terrible experiences I was having with them but once I found that that voice to be my own sort of patient advocate in those scenarios with medical you know teams and doctors um, there were ways to um, alleviate some of the you know um, procedures some of the awfulness from those procedures by you know standing up and actually saying no I don't like the way that we do it like that we need to find another another avenue and if there is one the medical team will will find one um, That's a really important message, being an advocate for yourself. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people just feel they can't challenge or they can't um, question. Uh, but if you are the advocate for your own health and well-being, and you're aware of the type of processes or you can explore what works best for you and ask for that, I, I really think that's a great tip for people. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's very daunting speaking to doctors who, you know, know, know things, but every patient is different. Um, it is, while there, while there should be, uh, you know, standards that people are, are practising to, um, you know, it might not work for everyone. Um, my lumbar punctures, you know, if we use that as an example, 
um, I uh, told them I would only ever get them under a medical imaging guide so that no, it could just be done and done properly the first time rather than a, a few attempts at trying to get something done. Um, and that worked really well and it was painless and it would, you know, alleviate all, uh, uh, alleviate all of the anxiety that would come along with having that procedure. But it took me quite a while to actually, you know, muster up some of the courage to say to, you know, really experienced doctors who you do put all of your trust into because, um, you know, they are the experts at this, but you're the person that's having the treatment done. So, that's right. You're the consumer of their world, not th- them of you. That's right. So you you do have the power to say, can we look at different options? And um, once once I found that voice, my um, treatment journey became a you know became a little bit easier because I knew that you know we could always have the conversation. Well, if you look at several components of you as the individual. It's all, again, it's, it's you orchestrating what your needs are. Yeah. So it's taking charge and taking those steps to actually gather what you need, get in place what you need. You know, um, you're already investing in yourself about what you need emotionally and um, challenging yourself with maintaining, you, you know, your connection with work and your identity in that space. So I, I actually congratulate you on having the the strength and confidence to then pursue those conversations and getting what you need in that health arena as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, you know, I mentioned before I'm a self-proclaimed control freak and it was one way that I could find some control in 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 a situation and in a scenario that you just have to relinquish your control of. Um, And that was really helpful. Did you find by speaking up to the healthcare team and being proactive and being able to um, express what your needs were. Were they, um, you know, did they, were they happy to support you in what your needs were or did you find any pushback? What was your communication like in that space? Yeah, I look, I lucked out and had some phenomenal specialists and haematologists and doctors and, and nurses and um, allied health professionals looking after me. Um, but they were incredibly accommodating because they realised that the standard of care that I was receiving wasn't the right fit for me. Um, And, you know, everyone is in a cookie-cutter, it's not a cookie-cutter approach to care. Um, And um, I found it incredibly helpful to um, speak with the nurses first and have have another medical professional as an advocate with you. Um, But... I, I, my experience was that they were always happy to discuss um, uh, how how they could better their care for you. Um, you know that that is at the end of the day what they're trying to do. They're trying to you know save your life. They're trying to get you through the treatment regime. Um, and yeah, they were accommodating because they realised that you know what was working for some people might not work for me. Yeah, and look, you know, I take my hat off to you again. And because it's all, it is all about communication and it's a two-way street. So obviously your approach in, in, in saying, you know, this is what my experience is and this is what my needs are. So that it's, it's in an approach, isn't it? All communication is um, how yeah. we go about it. Yeah, and I didn't know 
what the outcomes are going to be, you know, from from my questions or from my requests or, um, but there's no harm in asking. No, that's exactly and right. And there's no harm in standing up for yourself as well, you know. Yes, absolutely. Harry, you are now um, coming up to two years. Yeah, from diagnosis. Since yeah. diagnosis. Yeah. And you're back at work. What steps did you take to immerse yourself into a role? Did you have any struggles or were, did you have any fears about putting yourself out there again? Um, what were, you know, what were your challenges yeah. post-transplant? I, I remember um, sitting on my living room couch um, one day going, God, I am so bored. Um, it was it was the everyday boredom that really that I was struggling with because I couldn't feel my time, you know, and not to talk into the COVID world and everything like that, but, you know, I couldn't leave and do a whole lot of things. Um, as a lot of people who get transplants know, you have to sort of, you know, live in a sheltered life for a few months post a transplant so that everything um, goes well. Uh, and I was coming up to about... Oh, six months post-transplant. Um, and um, I was sitting on my couch, experiencing all that boredom. It was right for us. It was a day or so before I was uh, going to uh, see my specialist for an appointment. And I thought, I'm going to ask the question about going back to work. And when when does this happen? When, what is the normal timeline? You know, what, what is the cookie-cutter approach to going back to work? Um, and I went and saw my specialist um, on the Wednesday um, and I said to um, my, or, uh, sorry, hold on. I said to my remarkable doctor, um, when can I go back to work? When's normal? Uh, and she said about five and, a, five and a bit months. So very, very early on. Um, uh, and my doctor said to me, the only way that you know if you're ready to go back to work is if you, th- number one, think that you're ready, and number two, if you actually go and do it, because the only way that you actually know your capability is if you put yourself out there and do it. Um, and so that was incredibly daunting because I was turning to her for a definitive answer. You know, yes, yes, I am ready to go back. No, you're not ready. Um, and I was wanting her to tell me what I was doing because, um, you know, following all that treatment, you've got such a regimented schedule of things that are going on. And once you sort of get to that, um, you know, six months sort of thing after a transplant, particularly, you know, where you've had appointments three times a week and you, you've got a very regimented medical schedule and all that sort of starts to dissipate off a little bit and you're sitting there with all this free spare time going, well, what do I do? I'm so used to having my life planned out for me. Um, and I was really... And the vulnerabilities too. Oh, definitely. Those what if, the haunting vulnerabilities, right. the what ifs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really just wanted my doctor to tell me exactly what, what I was going to do because, you know, I'd been so regimented with my medical schedule. Uh, and for her to say to me, um, you know, you, you just have to you just have to go and give it a go. But um, I knew I was ready. I knew mentally I was ready. Uh, whether my body was physically ready was a different story. But 
um, I thought, yes, okay, um, I'm going to do it. I was still on quite a few medications and things at the time. I still had very regular um, medical appointments, um, weekly, if not fortnightly. Um, and then that vulnerability of the imposter syndrome came in again going, oh, geez, am I actually good enough to go back to work? Is my, can, can I still do all the things that I used to do? Am I really that same person again? Um, it definitely played a big part. And um, I just thought, you know, am I going to... Uh, I, I haven't let my diagnosis win over me um, throughout all my treatment, so I sort of thought, am I going to let it beat me now? Am I going to let it play these mental games of me going, you know, am I good enough? Can I do it? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll find something that really aligns with my values and something that I want to spend my time doing. Um, and those values had a realignment since my, since my treatment. And I looked at work differently about, you know, more of a fulfilling the things I want to do in life um, and the things I want to contribute to um, and really tried to focus on trying to find something that would align with where my values were at um, and finding some meaningful work, that purpose again. And I was very lucky that I, I came across a role that um, that aligned with what I wanted to do and that, that also aligned with some of my industry um, experience and for a course that I you know, really wanted to work on. Um, and I applied. Uh, it was really daunting doing that application because I had a big gap on my resume. And um, you mentioned the what ifs before and I thought, well, what if they asked me what I was doing for that, you know, 15 months that I didn't have work. Um, and what would I say? And I, and I remember Googling and, you know, how do you talk about having a, 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 a medical condition or a gap on your resume? And, you know, luckily in Australia, there's some great workplace laws surrounding what you can and don't have to say. You know, talking about workplace flexibility arrangements, it's a really daunting sort of conversation to, to have. But once I did that, once I really, you know, thought about how will I talk about this, what do I want to say? Do I want to give people, employers, an insight into my life? Um, and I took the approach of, well, you know, it's a big part of me and it's a big part of what's happening to me at the moment. I need the flexibility at work. You know, these are the days I can work because I've got medical appointments. You know, you can be a little bit selfish in wanting to really set boundaries and ground rules with what you want to do in work um, post, a, post having a big medical experience or a health experience. And once I reconciled with myself about, well, this is what I want, this is my expectations, um, I found it quite easy to communicate that because, you know, I wrote it down on paper going, this is what I want. Um, and it was sort of like a checklist thing. So I would go through and, and, you know, it would prompt me to have those conversations with, with an employer. And I was very fortunate that I found an employer that took on that flexibility with me as well. I think a lot about what you've just shared there too, Harry, is about acceptance. You know, that acceptance of, well, you, you even use the words, this is a part of who I am. This is me. So I'm going to embrace that. 
I, I, I'm not going to hide it. Um, this is what my needs are, but this is also my value. And so recognising and owning your own strengths and values and still maintaining to pursue what you're interested in and belief in self of what your contributions can be. So I think that's a really powerful message for people because I think any illness, it does take away our identity. You know, it changes our value system. It changes how we see life, what we you know, how we see ourselves in life. And there is an adjustment period to, you know, um, our next steps in life and getting through it. So your commitment to that acceptance of who you were prior to putting in your application for the role that you sit in, um, I'm sure that would have been a really um, a, a moment of discovery about who you are as an individual too. Yeah, it was, and it was, and it was about accepting that when when I was ready to go back to work, it wasn't me meeting the employer where they were at. It was mm. about the employer meeting me where I was at, and mm. where I was at was you know I wanted a part time role. I needed flexibility in days because things pop up you know, post a, post a transplant, post a blood cancer diagnosis. And, um, you know, and, and I was selfish in the fact that, I'm, that that's what I wanted and I wasn't going to accept any, any less than that. Um, and that was a really powerful thing to have that moment of acceptance, um, like you said. And really it was a continuation of that advocacy for me for what I wanted. Yeah, I'll take my hat off to you, Harry, because, you know, that's just very clear thinking. And, you, you know, we, you look at um, different aspects of survivorship and um, personally having worked with the Leukaemia Foundation for a number of years, um, I certainly see valuable qualities like the ones that you've, like the one that you've just shared. Um, and they're very much those attributes that help people live well post treatment and transplant and that sort of thing yeah and and i think you said something just saying um live well and that's what that's for me going back to work that's what it was that was going to enable me to to really survive post my post my treatment and transplant well who you are and and you know your talents and that sort of thing is your identity and that's very important to you yeah um gives confidence in relationships both personal and professional, and um, just helps with self, you know, who you are, how you feel about yourself. Yeah, that's right. You know, and it was, it was, um, um, you know, I've gone from a role where I was working almost seven days a week um, mm. to a role that, you know, I work three days a week now, so part-time, and, and it's about still, I said before, about acknowledging where you are at. And for me, I'm not at a point still, um, you know, coming into my second year since I was diagnosed. Um, I'm not at a point where I'm at full-time work capacity um, and accepting that that is okay. You know, um, I've always wanted to be that person that, you know, contributes, my partner works full-time. And, you know, there's something about being able to to match that, to match, uh, you know, the capacity that others are at, but that's not the reality. 
and and accepting that you know a reduction in your capacity is something that is is a real side effect an ongoing side effect of of the treatment um and and things that you've experienced and you know if anyone's going back to work full-time that's awesome that that somebody has done that um and if you're not going back to work full-time there's no need to have those feelings of guilt because you're obviously going back at at the capacity that you're ready to go back to and i hope to one day be at a full-time capacity but that's not where I'm at yet. Um, and, um, but it's something that I'm going to work towards over the next you know, couple of years, hopefully, before I'll, I'll be there. Um, but yeah, I think it's an important thing to recognise that, you know, you're not down and out. You can still do things in whatever capacity Absolutely. you want to. And celebrating those small wins. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you are, were only six months post-transplant when you re-entered the workforce. Yeah, yeah. So, and- I mean, that is that in itself is a small win. You know, um, a lot of people, and I don't think we should ever compare. You know, I think comparing is, you know, compare and despair, they say. Uh, no one should compare themselves. But, um, you know, I think if you can challenge yourself and be aware of what your own capacity is and take those steps to fulfil your dreams and goals, whether it be work, whether it be fitness and exercise, whether it be, you know, enjoyment and other things. Um, it's just being very clear about what brings you joy in life. Yeah. You know, right. what defines you as an individual? I, I um, have met plenty of people throughout my whole um, blood cancer since I was diagnosed with a blood cancer. And plenty of those people are, won't, won't go back to work. They don't want to go back to work. And they've found fulfillment and purpose in a whole range of activities and hobbies and, um, you know, volunteering for causes that they're passionate about. And so I think it's about just finding that personal fulfillment and what fills your cup each day, what motivates you, what gives you that purpose. Um, for me, it is work and, and some of my other extracurricular stuff that I can now do again. Um, and, yeah, it is recognising where you are at in your capacity um, and there is no point in, in comparing yourself to anyone. I was, I was really expecting to probably no, not go back to work until I was two years post a transplant, so, you know, still another year away, really. Um, and you know that wasn't that wasn't the plan that you know I had anymore. So it is about being adaptable to the new your new normal um, mm. as well. Yeah. Well, I think they're lovely. You know, we look for if you've listened to our podcasts conversations, we look for gold nuggets. Um, and you know, if if I were to ask you what would be one of your your key messages, what would that be? Um, my key message would be be selfish and do what you want to do. You've had a, something pretty terrible thrown at you um, and now's the time for you to reassess what you want to do and, and work towards that. I love that. Thank you, Harry. That was a you know wonderful, just a small snippet. As you know, a lot of people look for just those little conversations um, we all know here at the Leukemia Foundation when people have had um, a bone marrow transplant, there's a lot of time to fill. Yeah. And uh, we, what we do know is that these conversations with people like yourself just plant those seeds for people who are going through transplants. So, um, yeah, you know, there is a, there's another side 
you know, there is another side after after all of that um, that treatment that people go through and that I went through. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of that time reassessing what I wanted and um, realigning what my values were, what each day after that transplant meant to me. And, um, you know, because it is a new, you know, to be corny, it is a new lease on life. You're given it another chance. Um, and for me, I was given a chance because of my incredible donor. Um, and, um, you know, you don't want to waste that opportunity. So be selfish and do whatever you want to do. Have you done anything wild, wild and silly? Uh, nothing wild and silly. I have travelled a little bit again, though, um, which has been nice. Um, you know, after staring at a ceiling and, and for quite a few months in hospital and trying to find time that between looking at blue curtains, I swapped blue curtains for some lovely, you know, landscapes and seascapes. and um, But nothing wild because I don't want to undo all the great work that my doctors have done in, in getting me to this point. But um, hopefully shark diving's on the agenda this year. You know, they say that you can inherit some traits from your donor and adrenaline-seeking um, uh, traits, and I think I've I think I've got a couple of them, but sensible, sensible in a cage, shark diving so. in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, don't laugh. A lot of blood cancer patients that I know, well, a lot. I could name three that have just come to my head who have sent me. They've actually um, had a swim with yeah. sharks. Yeah. yeah, they have. So it's interesting that you say that that people are drawn to almost want to that they've sort of faced life mm. it's it's been they've they've confronted life and mortality and it's almost like they they want to uh test it again yeah. test the waters again by doing something a little bit risque yeah that's right and um yeah you know i think there's something great about small risk taking behavior <laughs> <laughs> it, you know it reminds you that you're alive so um yeah, that's it. uh yeah um you know, I was in Queenstown over the last Christmas holiday period and while I don't do anything with heights, um, you know, I do like a bit of speed and adrenaline. So, you know, it was an awesome place to test out um, some of that, you know, safer risk-taking behaviour and, you know, jet skiing on lakes and, and off-road driving and things like that. So, you know, there is, you, you can get back to doing some great things uh, and things that you really enjoy and want to do after you after you get that transplant or after you finish your treatment. Um, and, you know, once you reassess your capacity and, and things like that. But um, Have you had to deal with any of the graft versus host post-transplant yeah, I, well, difficulties? I have actually. Um, I um, uh, had the acute graft versus host in the first 100 days post my transplant. Um, and, um, you know, as, as a lot of doctors say, that's a good thing. They want to see a little bit of it because it means that this obviously isn't medical advice or <laughs> opinions, but, you know, they want to make sure that the, that the graft is working. Um, and then I've got some chronic GBHD that has presented in my liver and it is still being managed. Um, now I'm still on a lot of medication and, um, still having very regular appointments to make sure that everything is, you know, that that is at bay. But, um, 
you know, when I went back to work, just to circle back to that, I was having, that's when my uh, chronic GBHD had sort of started. And um, I was on um, a high dose steroid for that. And um, uh, it meant when I was at work that I couldn't, you know, walk downstairs quickly. So, you know, I was always taking the lift and things like that. Um, And it's funny to reflect on that now because, you know, now I'm running up and down staircases and, you know, I look back at what my capability was back then um, and I have very puffy cheeks and um, uh, skin breakouts and, you know, it was... It was weird to go back to work while all of this was sort of happening at the same time. But, um, you know, that was my that was my normal. And um, uh, everyone that I worked with was very accepting and I was very open. Um, you know, everyone is different in terms of how they want to talk about um, their, their diagnosis and things that are going on. I was very open with everyone around me. I had a very supportive team um, and just said, you know... This is, this is what's going on. This is why this is happening. And, you know, it is what it is. So, Harry, I do. I love that aspect because do you feel that having those open conversations and being so open about what your experiences were, do you think that just allowed others to just share on openly with you and accept where you were at? Definitely. Instead of guess and wonder and it becomes a closed conversation? Yeah, and I think it stopped, um, you know, one of those what if, you know, vulnerabilities is, well, what if people are going to talk about me? Um, what, if, what, if people, what if people find out about what I've been through? Um, and then, you know, and then, you know, conversations sort of start about, about you. And that was one of my fears. And it was, a, you know, when I was doing my research online about going back to work post a, post a, post a health um, condition, um, uh, I sort of, I took ownership over it and, and decided, well, I'll, I'll control, you know, the control freak that I am. I was yeah, like, yes. this, I can control this. Um, and, um, yeah, it certainly helped. People were asking questions. People wanted to know. And I was happy to answer because I think with education comes a lot of power. And that empowered me to um, not hide that, you know, this awful thing happened and mm. it is a part of me and, and it's going to be a part of me a part of me and part of my work life for a very long time mm. um and yeah I, I think taking ownership of that um certainly helped educating people on where i was at why these things were happening and mm. um and avoided any of that fear that i had that people might you know you know say oh did you see that harry had you know really puffy cheeks there and big skin breakout well, I would just go up to people and be like, look at my skin, it looks awful because of the steroids that I'm on, because of, you know, the treatment I've got to go through. So, um, yeah. It's quite liberating, really. That well, communication would be quite liberating. That's right. People would call it oversharing, but I call it, you know, communicating well. <laughs> I, I will say to you, though, Harry, I often say to people who I meet, if you ever have anything that's troubling you between the ears, like in your mind's eye, give yourself the opportunity to say it out loud because in that expression and words out loud there's it diffuses the thought it diffuses the worry and it doesn't become as big as it you know as it can be if you just let it play within your mind's eye so your choice about being open and honest and sharing what your experiences were i think gave you that opportunity to release and hear yourself say out loud Mm -hmm 
how it was affecting you. You know, even, you know, oh, look at my skin. So people could recognize and see that this was, this was distressing for you, you know, but there would, there would be an acknowledgement in that. So that full circle of communication, what it allowed is just to help diffuse the intensity of it. Yeah. Help you cope a little bit better. Yeah, that's right. And, and I suppose that actually was a coping strategy um, uh, of all the things that were happening to my body because of, you know, treatment and steroids and medications and that, um, right, talking about it out loud um, and acknowledging that things were happening was, was very important. So you've got a lo- lots of lovely little messages for people who are listening here today. So, um, you know, thank you, Harry, for spending the time with me. Um, I know that um, I wish you all the very best in your current role and um, I hope that you continue to have those open conversations and um, I hope that life delivers to you everything that you want. Oh, thanks, Mary. And it's been absolutely awesome to get to share my experience and hopefully, um, you know, if anyone is thinking, you know, can I do something? You can definitely do whatever you put your mind to. You can, you just have to, you know, tell yourself that you can and get out there and do it. Wonderful. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Marianne. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you found it helpful in some way. If you would like more information on today's show or our services, please feel free to contact one 800 620 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share, or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff, and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.